So it, it's really good to be here with you this morning and um, look into God's word and to praise God together. Um, he is good. He provides everything that we need. He sees us where we are. He knows our deepest desires and even our smallest needs. And he blesses the humble, but he also poses the proud. He wants us to trust him and to rely on him and to cling to him to see our needs met and our lives blessed. So keep your Bibles open. Um, and as you'll be relieved to hear, we won't have a verse by verse or word by word study today. Um, it's a very long text. I'm very thankful to Ben. He covered half of it already last week because part of it is just a repetition of what happened. And yeah, it's the second part of this love story. So just a quick review over last week's Sunday so, so we catch up with where we are in the story. Um, Bennett looked at this passage or up to verse 28 and um, he spoke to us about it from three different perspectives. It was the heart of the loving father. Um, ben compared that to God who has a heart for the people. He wants the best for his people um, and God knows what we need and he will provide it. And God wants all people to be saved. Then we saw the story through the eyes of the faithful servant. And Ben spoke here again about the faithful servant who was willing to go through all the troubles of this long and hard journey. And he relied on God's guidance. And he was willing to take this great responsibility, this great mission that he had to find a bride for his um, master's son. And the eyes of a willing bride. And that's Rebecca, the bride-to-be. Um, a young lady of virtue and generosity, and Ben compared her to the church and how we as a church should be looking forward to, uh, should be willing to follow Christ, serve others selflessly, and look forward to that heavenly wedding that we will have one day. So today's text um, continues with the same characters mostly, though we won't see Abraham again, but we'll be introduced to some other guys like Laban and Isaac. Um, so and just a recap on what has happened so far in the story. So Abram was getting old, Sarah had died, and he wanted a wife for his son Isaac, through whom God promised a multitude of children would come. And so Abram sent, sent his most senior servant off with his great mission to find a wife for Isaac. The servant took an oath and lots of stuff with him and set off with the assurance that God will provide a wife for Isaac, and he was told by Abraham that God's angel would go before him to make this trip successful. And then once Abraham's servant had arrived at the destination, he prayed to God and said, God, can you please make these things happen so I know exactly who the person is that I, I'm supposed to talk to? And God did, even before the servant finished his prayer, and Rebecca, this beautiful girl, came out. Um, she was beautiful, pretty, Selfless, hardworking, hospitable, and I think a little bit ditzy because she left the guy at the well and ran back to her mom to show off all the jewelry she's gotten and the stuff that happened. So and that's where we find ourselves today with um, Abram's serv servant still stood at the, at the well and Rebecca at home. So as we pick up the story today, we'll introduce to Laban. And it says there, in verse 29 to 31, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to, to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm, 
and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. We don't know exactly how much time went by um, since Rebecca had left this poor man on his own, but he was still stood there waiting for God to move. And we get a little glimpse into what happened at home. So Rebecca managed to get home. She told her mom all the stuff that had happened, and her brother Laban saw the ring and the bracelets that she'd gotten. And they were expensive. I did a little bit of research. I found out how much weight the ring was and the bracelets that she's got. And then compared it to the gold prices these days, because I, I don't know how else to compare it. Um, so the ring that he put on her nose was roughly 670 pounds worth of money. The bracelets were about 5,400 pounds worth. I'm not really into jewelry, but uh, even this caught even my attention. And we know that Laban was a very clever businessman. He loved um, business, and as we find out in the, in the future, he was after money all the time. And he saw the jewelry, and then he heard what happened. And I want you to notice to, um, what the text says about um, Laban, here, about his character. It says the first thing about it says it says about his character is that he saw the ring and the bracelets, and only after that he heard what his sister was talking about, and I gather from that and from other accounts that we have of Laban, that we read about later in Genesis, when we continue our studies, that his life goal was to get rich. And he didn't mind cheating. He didn't mind lying. If he could get rich, he was going to go get rich. So he saw the money. He saw the Gold in his eyes turned to dollar signs, and off he went to find this blessed man who had just given his sister about 7,000 pounds of jewelry just for watering the camels and giving him some water. So he runs out to find this rich guy, and when he gets there, the poor guy, Abram's servant, is still standing in the same place Rebecca left him, and he's waiting for God to move. And so then we see how Laban speaks to him. He says, oh, come in, oh, blessed of the Lord. Obviously, Laban hasn't understood who this man was because he thinks this servant is the rich guy. In Laban's mind, blessing is material wealth. And unfortunately, that's not too far from what many Christians understand blessing to be today. There are churches out there who will teach that if you're rich, you're blessed. If you're not rich, you're not blessed. Live your best life now, and God wants you to be rich. And I'm sure Laban would have gone to a church like that if there were churches around back then. And we also see that Laban had some kind of understanding of who God was. He knew the name as he speaks of Yahweh, you blessed of the Lord, and he knows God's um, own name. So he knows something about God. And Laban wants some of the blessing that this mysterious stranger had, some of the riches, some of the wealth. And if you want to get rich, you don't want to hold back at any opportunity. You don't want to miss any opportunity to get money to get rich, because then you wouldn't get rich. And we see how Laban sucks up to the Abram's servant. And I wonder how the servant felt in that moment. This guy comes to him and says, oh, blessed of the Lord, thinking he's the rich guy. 
And this, he's just a poor servant. He may have been rich. He was in charge of all the stuff, but he was just a servant. And he knew that all these gifts were not from him. He just passed them on. They were from his master, Abraham. And Laban is very hospitable. Um, it's, it's, I think it's funny in a way how he says, oh, blessed of the Lord. And then he asks the question, why do you stand outside? I think the answer is very easy. Re- Rebecca left him there. <laughs> he didn't know where to go. He didn't know where they lived. So to me, it looks a little bit clumsy how he first sucks up to him and then just says something awkward like, oh, why, why are you still out here? And he says, for I have prepared the house and the place for the camels. And Laban is very hospitable, and I think that's probably part of the culture back then and even today when you go to the Middle East, it's very, very hospitable. People are very friendly. They will invite you in. Um, Yeah, even if you're their enemy, they'll invite you in. As long as you don't decline their offer, you'll be treated as a friend. So there's no time wasted. Abram's servant comes to Bethuel's house. His animals are fed. His feet are washed or... He washes his feet and his servants do the same. And the food is prepared for this important man and his servants. And it seems that still nobody quite understands who this guy is. They all think he's this rich guy. And then the uh, servant holds a speech, and that is a long speech. And Abram's servant had come with a mission, and that mission had first priority. There was food on the table and everything was ready, but the servant had something to say that was more important than fellowship over a food, over a meal. And in verse 33, we see that there's great urgency to what he has to do, what he has to say. And he says, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. We see that the servant, uh, we saw that the servant was being, was tasked to find a wife for Isaac by Abraham. And we saw him traveling this whole long distance. It says later then, um, as Ben spoke about uh, last Sunday, that the servant, when he saw Rebecca, he ran to Rebecca. We heard that God heard his prayers immediately. So some kind of urgency about this mission, about this task that he has. He does things and he does them immediately and he gets stuff done. So I'm not sure why there was this urgency, but I can imagine that Abram was old. He knew he didn't have much time left. He didn't know how much time. And so he'd probably told his servant, go quickly, get a wife. And the servant was, going to, was trying to come back before Abraham left this world. And so he was hurrying to get there, to get back. And now he's not even ready to eat until he's revealed who he really is. And in verse 34, he introduces himself. And he says, I am Abraham's servant. He doesn't blow his own trumpet. He is Abraham's senior servant. He's the guy who's in charge of all of Abraham's stuff. He is the steward of all this stuff. But he introduced himself humbly. I am Abraham's servant. He's identifying himself as a man under authority. He didn't come in his own name, but in the name of Abraham. And he shows true humility by showing them who he really is without any frill, without any pomp, without any great blowing of his own trumpet. And then he goes on to speak about the guy who's really blessed by the Lord in verse 35 and 36. Earlier we saw Laban who came to to the servant and says, oh, blessed of the Lord, saying to him, oh, I think you are are rich, you are blessed. And now this servant says, 
he kind of corrects him, maybe a little backhanded rebuke. He says, the Lord greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. And then he lists off all the stuff that he's got. And I think it's beautiful to see how the, the contrast between himself introducing himself as, I'm Abram's servant, not much stuff about it. And then he speaks about Abraham and explains in detail how Abram is rich. But also he says he's the blessed of the Lord, that God gave the glory and the wealth to Abraham. It wasn't, Abraham, uh, it wasn't that Abraham got all this stuff because he was such a shrewd businessman or because he was so good at breeding animals or, or doing business. Abram was rich because God gave him everything. And God does bless materially. It's not that God doesn't give us anything. And in the Old Testament, it was a sign of blessing most of the time that God gave material stuff to people. Because his people were the people of Israel. They were a people, and God wanted them to be um, blessing the nations around them and giving to those around them. And then he also goes on to say that God blessed Abraham with a son, Isaac. Abram doesn't mention Ishmael or any of the other sons that Abram had, only Isaac, because Isaac was the son of the promise. And the servant makes sure to, makes sure to mention that Abram and Sarah had Isaac when they were old. And I can almost see him smiling at the story because he knew the story, he was there. And Abram had given everything to Isaac. And when we continue reading in, the, in, our, uh, in our series, next Sunday we'll read in Genesis 25, verse 5 and 6, that Abraham sent all his other sons away with gifts, but the inheritance was only given to Isaac, the son of the promise. And then I'm very grateful to Ben for covering this last week. The servant retells the story um, and is very diligent in explaining why he'd come and explaining all, everything in detail that happened. There's just one thing that I want to highlight, um, maybe highlight again, that the servant worshipped God. He was very God-fearing. He worshipped God for the protection on the way, for leading him to the right place. He was very aware that he wouldn't have been able to make it without God's help. And here it says the phrase, the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. I think it's beautiful. It shows how God did bless people through Abraham. The servant had some kind of relationship with God, but it was only because of Abraham. And how wonderful is it that we can worship and praise this great and awesome God as our own father. I can speak to God as my God, my father. I don't have to go and say, well, God of um, Abraham my master or somebody else. I have God. I have a direct connection to God. God is all-powerful and awe-inducing. And no one can stand before God. But the amazing thing is that God's own son, Jesus, stood in our place so we can be standing in his place. And we come boldly to the Father, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us so beautifully. It says there, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So once um, the servant has recited or retold all the things that happened, there's a decision that needs to be made. Now that the mystery is lifted around this servant's purpose and person, 
he poses the question. And I think it's very interesting how he says, um, how he asks them. He says in verse 49, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And the words he's using here are usually used in context with God. We see even the servant using the words, show steadfast love to my master in verse 12, verse 14, and 27. And each time he speaks to God. He asks God to show steadfast love, or some call it loyal love or kindness to his master. He acknowledged that he was at God's mercy and he needed God to show kindness to him if he wanted this trip to succeed. And now he was placing himself at the mercy of Rebecca's family. He asks them to be kind to him, to be honest to him, so that he knows where, he is in, uh, where he's at in regards to his oath. Would they accept? Would they decline his offer, his question, his request? So he knows how to go back or when to go back to, um, to Abram, his master. And if I was in um, Bethuel, so Rebecca's father's place, or in Laban's place, I don't know how I would have reacted. But to me, the decision they make comes too easy, too quick. If I think of somebody coming from somewhere to ask for Arya's hand, I'm not just going to say, oh, well, God told you? Great. Here you go. So the, what um, Laban and Bethuel say is in verse 50 and 51, we read, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak good or bad, or bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And I said, I, I'm not sure why Laban is, oh, I'm not even sure why Laban was involved in it. If somebody came to ask for Arya's hand, I wouldn't necessarily sit down with Ezra and say, so Ezra, what do you think? Do you think we should? We shouldn't? This guy's just arrived. But somehow, some people think it was cultural that Laban was involved. It may be. Um, I want to pose the suggestion that maybe he's also mentioned because we'll read about him later. He is going to be involved in, um, in the story with um, Jacob, Isaac's son, who's going to marry both of Laban's daughters. So and I think to this answer that they gave, there's two, possibly two options. I'll present two options why I think they were that quick. Maybe they were God-fearing people, Laban and Bethuel, and they heard God said this, so we will be obedient. And they took it as from God. They never questioned it. They, were just, they just obeyed and um, followed God. No, I'm not, I'm not too sure about that. The more I think about Laban and how he was... I think maybe they were more thinking of the gifts that this guy brought. He had just given Rebecca 7,000 pounds worth of jewelry. So this guy was rich. Laban was a businessman. So I think maybe he was an opportunity for him to get rich. It's like, yes. If this is just what they give us, just for water, imagine what they will give us if we say, yes, you can have her as your wife. Also, Rebecca would be gone and her... Servants would be gone. That's, that means less mouths to feed. That means more money for us. So I don't know. But to me, that seems like it's a bit more plausible than them really fearing God because we find later that they don't really fear God. They just live their own lives. They know God's name, but 
they don't really care. And something, yeah, just something about the answer that they give it doesn't sit right with me. Maybe I just don't understand the culture enough. That maybe, maybe I need to study more. Maybe some of you have more light to shed on that. But that's how I'm, how I'm reading it. And then we read um, the servant's reaction in verse 52 and 53. Again, we see the servant is in total devotion to God. He's aware that God is at work. And however this answer came about, he knows that it's of God. And that um, God was blessing this journey. And the servant is humble. He is God-fearing at the least if he doesn't have a personal relationship with God. And he knows who to thank for these blessings and for the blessing that Rebecca said yes. So then the servant brought out more gifts. And yeah, not surprisingly, the family was very happy about it. They got more stuff. Rebecca gets the most gifts, which is probably sad for Laban because she's going to leave with all those things. But um, Rebecca's mother and Laban also get some costly ornaments. Literally, that just means precious things, expensive stuff. So and everybody's happy, and they have a celebration. Finally, they get to eat the food that was hopefully still warm and drink the drinks that they brought. So they celebrate this match made in heaven. Um, the servant was happy. He'd found a wife for, Rebecca, uh, for his master. Rebecca was happy. She was now going to get married to a wonderful rich man. The family was happy too. Obviously, Laban was happy. He got lots of stuff. And so after a good feast and a good night's sleep, uh, the servant wants to leave in the morning. But Rebecca's mother and Laban aren't quite as sure anymore as they were the night before. Think maybe stuff is happening too quickly. Maybe they've had a night's sleep over their decision. They're like, oh, maybe we didn't think that through. We want a little bit more time with Rebecca because if she leaves now, she might never come back. We might never see her again. And so they try to delay, but again, we see the urgency that the servant has to complete his task, to complete his mission, and he insists on leaving. And so they ask Rebecca, um, and they want to find out what she thinks. And um, her answer is very quick, very telling, I think, of her. And they said to her in verse um, 58, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. She's ready to go. He is a man who came from far away. God had directed him very, very clearly. And so now it was on her to obey and follow God. And she was willing to go immediately. I think it's just a very, very beautiful, willing heart. She says, I go. And I wish that I and we all could trust God in the same way. That when he calls, him, calls us, we just say, I will go. I will follow you. And now that they've heard it from Rebecca's own mouth, they let her go. Um, not, her, not on her own, but um, they sent her nurse with her. Sorry, spelling mistake. They sent her nurse with her and also some of her young servants. Then we come to verse 60. And it says there, And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, May you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate, uh, the gate of those who hate him. So what, before she leaves, they speak a blessing over her. They speak a wish over her, that something that they wish for her. 
And their desire was that she would become a multitude of people, that she would have many, many children. And where have we heard that promise before? God gave the same promise to Abraham, to Abram and Sarah. He would make them into a great nation. And here was Rebecca's family wishing the same thing for her. And it would happen, not to her, but her descendants would be many afterwards. And then they go on to say, may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. I think if I said that to somebody today, as a blessing, they'd be like, you're weird. <laughs> Just what kind of gate? Nobody's got gates anymore. Well, some people have gates in front of the house. At NTM, we have a big gate. But what's the thing about possessing the gate? And um, if you paid attention just a few weeks back in chapter 22, you would have heard that God made exactly the same promise word for word to Isaac in Genesis 22, 15 to 18. God says, uh, it says there, the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven. So that was just after Abram was about to sacrifice Isaac and God said, stop, no. And then God speaks this, and the, angels, the angel of the Lord called to Abram for a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the, that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the only two times we find this phrase, possess the gates of your enemy in the Bible. And what a perfect fit. Rebecca gets the same blessing in a completely different situation, completely different location. They probably don't know anything about what happened to Isaac. And God speaking to Isaac before that, giving them the same um, promise, the same prophecy. It's all nice and beautiful that they've got the same blessing, but what does it mean to possess somebody's gates? And um, I looked around a little bit and Cambridge uh, Bible Dictionary or Bible Commentary says, the possessors of the gate were the controllers of the affairs of the city. So the gates were a place where the rulers would sit and they would discuss things, they would make um, laws, decisions on stuff, they would judge. And so the family is wishing for her offspring that her offspring would rule those who hated him and rule he would. Her offspring, the one that they're speaking about here, maybe without knowing, is Jesus. Jesus would be, the one of, would be one of her descendants and he's the ultimate ruler. He's in control of everything. He will judge everyone according to the deeds, to their deeds at the end of time. And he's already in control. And he is part of the fulfillment of this blessing, of this prophecy. And if you read it here, you notice that it speaks of the offspring as a singular, so as one person. It says here, may your offspring possess the gates of the city of those who hate him. And Galatians 3.16, Paul picks this up again and he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to his to offsprings, as of uh, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring, who is Christ. So obviously Paul picks up a different um, prophecy here, but it's the same word. 
And it's the same prophecy that, um, about this one seed, about Christ. So now that they've blessed Rebecca, they just sent her off. There's not much said about the goodbye. I'm sure there was lots of tears and lots of crying and hugging and, and all that comes with it. And so Rebecca and her girls get up and leave with Abram, servant. And now everyone's been waiting for this part to resolve the whole story. Love at first sight from verse 62 to the end. I remember the first time I laid eyes on Nom and it was beautiful. She still thinks I didn't, uh, I don't remember it correctly, but that's the way I want to remember it. So in verse 62, um, we are introduced, uh, we meet Isaac again. And if you read the, um, if you follow each character of the, of the account, you'll, you'll find out that the last time we saw Isaac was when he was saved on the altar. When he was saved, he wasn't, yeah, he was yeah, saved and not killed by his own father. We don't even read of him coming down the mountain. We don't read anything about him. He doesn't show up until this moment. Not even when Sarah dies, we read anything about Isaac. So all we know is that here that he was traveling around, he returned from this place to live somewhere else. We don't even know if he traveled with his father or if he traveled on his own. There's debates between um, commentators and we just don't know. And that's okay. But what we know is that he has been to a place called Beer La, La Hoi Roy. And if you look up where this place is and what has happened there before, it's the place where God met Hagar and where God um, spoke to Hagar. And the place that she called the well of the living one who sees. In this passage, we've read about um, Isaac having lost his mom. And we read, we read that he was moving around. We don't know much about him, about his lifestyle, his careers or anything. But what we know is that he was sad. If you look at the last verse that we've read here um, in verse 67 it says so Isaac was comforted after all uh, after his mother's death so he was a sad man and he'd been to this place and I wonder why why did God put it in there that it says he went to this place of the well of the one he sees and I think because the writers of Genesis want us to know that God sees us even when we're in sadness and um, in dark places So we don't know much about him and why he went around, but what we know here is that in verse 63 says, it says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening. Again, lots of debate, what's meditating? What did he do in the fields? Was he just there? Some people think he was a thinker. Some people think he was definitely praying. Lots of people write he was absolutely definitely praying for a wife. We don't know. It just says he went and he meditated there. I have a suggestion. Maybe he was just sad. Maybe he was sad about his mom, losing his mom. Some people, uh, commentators think it was probably about three years after his mom died that we read this account. Maybe he was depressed. Maybe he just needed time to be sad. Maybe he just needed time to on his own. Just go away and just be by himself. We don't know. But if you think about the relationship that he had with Sarah, Sarah had him at 90 years old. 
she would have laughed every time she saw him. She would have smiled every time she saw him. She would have probably pinched herself every time she saw him. She's like, how is this possible? She would think, like, how, how did I, at 90 years old, give birth to this boy and nurse him and raise him? He'd been her only child. He was the child that she'd longed for so, so many years. He was the child that was promised by God. And because of that, I'm sure he was spoiled. <coughs> spoiled rotten. And most importantly, I think he was loved by his mom. And could it be that he was just out there thinking about his mom, meditating on the loving relationship he had with her and how much he missed her? When, while he was meditating there, thinking, praying, or whatever else this phrase might mean, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the camels coming. Maybe his eyes were downcast because when you're sad, you don't tend to walk around sad like this. Most of the time when we sad, we kind of look down and we're sad. That's why we're down. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw the camels coming. And I'm sure he was aware of the servant's mission to go and get him a wife, and we're not told what he did. We're not told of his reaction. But I think what's noteworthy is that it says here, he lifted up his eyes. Because the very next sentence says, Rebecca lifted up her eyes. Again, the same phrasing, the same thing that they do. They've got so much in common. They're a perfect fit for each other. What? <laughs> and I, th I think it's beautiful. Um, they're doing the same thing here, and who knows if their eyes met or not, we don't know. But what we know is that um, Rebecca asks the servant, who's this guy? And he says, he's my master. And she understands it's not Abraham, it's Isaac, so she quickly gets off the camel and does the respectful thing. Um, she covers herself um, with a veil as a symbol of modesty and chastity. And she wanted to give a good impre first impression to her soon-to-be husband. And the servant explained everything to Isaac, everything that happened. Thankfully, we don't have it recorded again because then we'd have more to read in this longest chapter in Genesis. But we can be sure, very sure that he was very detailed in his um, report of what had happened because he had done it before. So when the servant explains everything to, Abraham, uh, to Isaac, and I'm sure Isaac was happy. If Abram was there, he was happy that this trip was a success. God had guided him. God had given him success. And Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother's tent and took her as his wife. I think this is simple, but it's beautiful. And if it was really three years since Sarah had died, that means Isaac and maybe Abraham had carried around and put up Sarah's tent for three years empty. Can you imagine that? I know we, sometimes we carry stuff around from people who have passed because we just want to keep the memory. But they carried around the tent, put it up every time. And it's just, to me, it just, it just shows how much Isaac loved his mom. And they had this tent, empty tent, but now there will be life again in that tent. It would be great joy. Rebecca would move in, and she would fill the hole in, Sarah, uh, in Isaac's heart that Sarah had left. 
we read that Isaac loved Rebekah. And Isaac was comforted after the death of his mother. And it's interesting, so far we haven't been told too much about Isaac. We haven't been told about his character, his, all the stuff that he's done, stuff. But I think what we uh, have read here, just in the last two, three verses, is that he was a man of strong emotions. We read of love, we read of sorrow. And I think he was an emotional man. He was very much in contact with his emotions. And it's good, emotions are good. God gave us emotions. And as Christians, oftentimes we try and hide emotions, maybe especially as men. I don't like crying in front of people. I don't like crying at all. Um, as you, you can ask Nam, I don't show too much emotion. And yeah, that's just me. Maybe I'm just not like Isaac too much. But emotions are good. They're beautiful, they're necessary, and they help us cherish the moments and memories that we have. And I think it's such a beautiful note how um, God finishes this chapter. Finishing on this, this um, comfort that Isaac had. The whole story that we read started with a widower and his desire for a wife for his son. And it finishes with a son who is comforted over the death of his mother and loves his wife. I think that's just a beautiful little summary that the, the author did here. So some things to take away from our story today So as I'm rounding up. What can we learn about humans? Humans have needs. We have needs, whether we want to admit it or not, we all have needs. Isaac needed a wife to help him through the sorrow of his mother's death. Humans are easily distracted um, from important things. We read about Laban, who saw the gifts, he saw the ring, the jewelry. Isaac was stuck in sadness over his loss. Humans can be selfless. We read about Rebecca, how selfless she was in, I think Ben said last time, was it 1,300 liters or whatever? She, she probably poured out, uh, brought from the spring to the camels. That was an act of selfless love. Humans can be faithful. The servant, Abram's servant, was very faithful. He brought everything, he recorded everything. And I understand now why Abraham put him over all this stuff, because this guy was thorough and he had a good memory. What can we learn about God? God provides. He provided direction for the servant. He provided a wife and comfort for Isaac. God sees us. God saw the servant when he went out and he saw the earnest and um, honest prayer of this, young, of this servant when he was praying for the right wife for his master. And God saw Isaac when he was meditating and when he was sad about Sarah, about Sarah's death. God hears our prayers. The servant's prayer was answered immediately, even before he could say amen if he did. And that doesn't happen always. We pray to God, God hears us, God hears our prayers. He might not answer immediately, but he does hear us. And God keeps his promise. And the blessing that was given to Sarah, uh, to Rebecca, sorry, was, came to fulfillment in the nation of Israel, as we read in the Bible. It came in fulfillment through the children of faith as the church and the Christ, the ultimate ruler of everything, even over those who hate him. Some applications, and we're almost done. 
Application number one, don't love stuff. Laban is the first character we meet here, and the first thing that's recorded about this character is he saw the rings and he saw the bracelets. Get rich or try dying, uh, die trying. Sorry, I can't, never can say that right. Get rich or die trying. 50 cent. <laughs> um, that's, that's a motto for many people. We want to get rich. We want to have that money, that security, that stuff, and that becomes our God. And an old missionary once said very poignantly, it'll all burn in the end. It'll all burn in the end. So don't live your life focused on stuff. Jesus, our master, our king, didn't even have a place to put his head. So don't believe those self-proclaimed preachers of the gospel who fly in airplanes and everyone who believes God is gonna be rich. That's a scam. That's heresy. But at the same time, God didn't call us to be poor. God didn't call us to be rich or poor. What he called us to is, Matthew six twenty, to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust where thieves do not break in and steal. That's what we call to. Don't love stuff. Be faithful. Abram's servant was very faithful at his task. He did it without complaining and without hesitating. And you can ask Nam, I like hesitating. I like procrastinating. So somebody made me a little sign with a quote that says, stop yapping, get cracking. Because <laughs> I, I like talking and I don't like doing too much. But this servant was very different from me. The servant had an urgency about his mission. He needed to get it done. And we as believers have a mission to go and make disciples of all the nations. And that includes Lincoln or wherever you live. For me, that includes North Coats, where NTM is, and it includes the ends of the earth. So let's not get sidetracked by all these things. Our mission is not to elevate living standards around the world or eliminate injustice. Our mission is to save souls and disciple them. That is our mission. That is the commission that we've gotten. And there's three possible responses to this. I can give, be it money, be it time, be it skill, be it prayer, be it personnel. I can go. I'm willing to go and preach the gospel, be it at my neighbor's store, or at the end of the earth, or I can ignore it. And we can also ignore God's great desire for all men to be saved and none to perish. There's an urgency about this task and it shall trump all the other priorities in life or ministry. A third application is be willing. Rebecca was willing to obey and to follow God uh, where God led her she was ready to be used by God in the way that God was going to use her. She didn't know Isaac. She'd only heard about him. He could have ended up being a horrible man. But she trusted God and followed immediately. And be thankful and worship God. The servant is a great example of how immediate gratefulness to God looks like. He was thankful to God for his guidance. He was thankful to God for the answer that he gotten. We read it two or three times that he bowed down and he worshiped God. So be challenged today. There is a great mission out there. 
God is, uh, God is the one giving the mission, and you can say yes or you can say no. But are you going to be obedient and say, I will go? But also be encouraged today. You're not alone. The one who possesses the gates of those who hate him is on your side. And he said, I am with you to the end of the earth. God never gives a mission that he can't complete. Okay, let's pray. And Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you for this account um, that's so long and so detailed. We thank you that you put it there for us so we can learn. And we pray that you help us to understand who you are. Help us not to cling on to our stuff and want to get more stuff, but help us to focus on you and um, build up treasure in heaven. We pray that we as a church will be willing to um, reach people around us and reach people at the, at the end of the earth. We pray that you would give us willing hearts and that you'd help us to focus on you and believe you and trust you. And we thank you again for the kindness that you've given us. We thank you for your word, for your goodness, and that you provide everything that we need. Amen.